when somebody has gestational diabetes, which is literally defined as carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, they cannot handle a very large portion of carbohydrates coming in at a single time point. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 143 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Lauren. Hello, everyone. And my sister Renee is here joining me. Hello, Renee. Hello, everyone. female-focused conversation today. We are really, really excited to bring on Lily Nichols for you today to talk about prenatal nutrition, gestational diabetes. I know we've said this before, but she goes in the category of, we wish we had her on sooner. She is amazing, a wealth of knowledge. And I just have to give out a shout out to my client, Amber, who turned us on to her work. She is doing amazing, amazing work. It kind of busting some myths in this space and really kind of nudging policy to make changes and to educate clients, the patient and practitioners to make better choices um, in this realm. So we are just so appreciative of her, of her. The conversation flew by. I wish it was five hours long, maybe six hours long, but luckily she has two books. She has a blog. She's present on social media. So if you can't get enough of her as uh, we felt today, then there will be lots more to dig into after. Yeah. I feel like today was just the tip of the iceberg. It was like a little bit on ketosis, a little bit about pregnancy myths. Like, I mean, such valuable information and very practical. So I think for all the women out there, whether you're looking to conceive soon or you are pregnant or you're breastfeeding, really amazing information. But like Lauren said, definitely take a deep dive into her books there. It's just filled with incredible information and she's so sweet. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. She was so kind to spend so much time with us today. We're so grateful that she was able to do that. Yeah. Lots of rabbit holes. I feel like every question I asked, I was like, oh, there's 20 more questions in this. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe take some notes and then write down some questions that you might have and we could address them on a later podcast or when you dig into her resources, I think you'll have a better roadmap for what you want to find out. So perfect. She is incredible. Okay. A little bit more about Lily. Her, here was her bio. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Drawing from the current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course of the same name, presents a revolutionary nutrient-dense lower-carb approach for managing gestational diabetes. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, most without the need for blood sugar lowering medication, but also has influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily's clinical expertise and extensive background in prenatal nutrition have made her a highly sought after consultant and speaker in the field. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, is an evidence-based look at the gap between conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines and what's optimal for mother and baby. With over 930 citations, this is the most comprehensive text on prenatal nutrition to date. 
Lily is also the creator of the popular blog, lilynicholsrdn.com, which explores a variety of topics related to real food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. Whether you are a mother or someone that is planning to conceive or know a mother in your life, I think this is for all of you. Lots to dig in here. Yeah, let's bring her on. Welcome, Lily, to the show. We're so happy to have you here today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for the invite. So welcome. We're so excited to talk to you today, specifically about prenatal nutrition, maybe some myths and common misconceptions where we can do better as practitioners and also just as educated and empowered clients and humans, I think with the desire for optimization. I know you have a lot to say in this arena. And I think you have a really interesting perspective based on, well, your experience with the Weston A. Price diet, your experience with public policy, and then specific to prenatal nutrition. So I would love to kick it off maybe with talking about the gap between public policy, current research, maybe where the myths have all started here. Like, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Maybe you can just introduce your background and how you got got here. Sure. So... You know, my my background formally is as a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator. I got into the nutrition world kind of early, um, a little bit by chance. I mean, I had health conscious parents, but they weren't eating Western Price necessarily. Um, kind of split between like being into whole foods, but also having like a lot of um, vegetarian family members and stuff like that. So it was kind of like this odd gap. And I happened to, um, do an internship with a nutritionist who was, um, into Weston A. Price's work and had nourishing traditions in her office. And I was actually vegetarian at the time. And even though I was doing everything right, was not doing well (laughs) health wise as many, as many vegetarians do. Um, and that got me like, opened my eyes to this whole side of ancestral nutrition really as a teenager. So by the time I went through my formal dietetics training, you know, at university and, you know, hospital internship, I wasn't going through it all with like rose colored glasses. I was really looking at things pretty critically, like, well, you know, Dr. Price's work says this about animal fats and saturated fats and retinol and vitamin K2. There's barely any research even on vitamin K2 at that point. And so that always kind of colored the way that I looked at nutrition. And then it wasn't until I was working um, clinically as well as in the public policy sphere with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is related to essentially gestational diabetes, but any type of blood sugar imbalance during pregnancy that I was kind of thrust into this, okay, looking at the guidelines from this very specific lens of blood sugar balance in pregnancy and kind of critically examining like, where do these guidelines come from and do they make sense? And also do they work in clinical practice, which I unfortunately found out that they, they often don't work very well. Um, and from there, my work has kind of expanded into looking at many different facets of how the guidelines uh, related to pregnancy nutrition fall short. There, there's many gaps in the um, you know evidence used to back them up. But once you set guidelines, no matter how shoddy the evidence is that's used to set them, it's really hard to undo that or redo them. Um, and if you do suggest anything contrary to them, it's like the onus is on you to back up your stance with all the data. So a lot of people look at me as being this kind of critical reviewer of such guidelines and writing about it and speaking about it. And, you know, at least in my writing, I can't do that in a presentation, but in my writing here um, on my blog and in my books, 
actually providing the studies that are backing up why I don't think those guidelines are always um, in our best interest or where they need to be, you know, adjusted. So, um, you know, people find that in my books, uh, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and uh, Real Food for Pregnancy, if they want to look into that um, a little more. But yeah, I'm here like this sort of lone wolf dietitian who's uh, has many contrary opinions uh, compared to what the guidelines are telling us. Shaking yeah. things up. People don't like that. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think I heard you say uh, on a podcast or something uh, that when you were writing your book, how you had to have so many references because you were going against the grain versus if you're just, you know, spelling off the normal stuff, people are like, oh yeah, whatever. So was there a light bulb moment for you where you were like, wait, something is going on with the carb intake, refined carbs? Yeah. It started with the gestational diabetes work. You know, again, I came into this not thinking the guidelines were perfect by any means, but you think they're better backed by at least some evidence. And it, it's actually kind of disheartening when you really start to dig into it. So it started with the the carbohydrate guidelines for, uh, pregnancy, which I mean, they're a reflection of our general dietary guidelines, right? 45 to 65% of your diet, your calories are supposed to come from carbohydrates. So they say, uh, only half of your grains whole though, right? So you can get away with this, you know, 50% of your grain intake from things like white flour and, and white rice. No problem there, right? But it was seeing the blood sugar responses in practice. So, you know, I, I did try to be like a good little dietitian and, and not rock the boat too much in the beginning and and maybe not teaching us strictly on reducing fat intake because that was just obviously so wrong. But like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you do have wiggle room for this, you know, 45 grams of carbs at a meal. No, it, it really does not work very well in practice when somebody has gestational diabetes, which is literally defined as carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. They cannot handle a very large portion of carbohydrates coming in at a single time point. Not that 45 grams is necessarily very high, but it's often higher than somebody with some glucose intolerance can handle. That might work fine for an athlete. Athletes might do well with even more than that, but for somebody with insulin resistance, that's, that's too many. So it's like you give these guidelines with the goal of helping these women improve their blood sugar levels and then their blood sugar levels get worse. And the only obvious, you know, conclusion is that, okay, maybe these guidelines are kind of a mismatch. Um, as I write, like, did they fail diet therapy or did the diet fail them? And my opinion was that the diet failed them. And that opened the can of worms of whether or not a lower carbohydrate diet could be safe during pregnancy because the, you know, overwhelming conventional opinion was that that's absolutely bar none unsafe. Um, We can get into why. And so that took a lot of unpacking. And that's really what the focus of my first book on gestational diabetes is about. Because, you know, if your blood sugar is too high on their meal plan, you can't go lower carb. They tell you, you can't go lower carb. You just need to fix it, treat it with insulin or oral hypoglycemic medication. There's no wiggle room in going less than 175 grams of carbohydrates per day, because that's what the guidelines say, right? So there's no question of whether the guidelines are correct or not. It's like, well, these are the guidelines. So we're sticking to the guidelines and your blood sugar is still high, but you still need to eat this because that's what's safe for your baby. So we need to treat it with insulin. That is the 
So by uncovering, you know, the truth about where those numbers came from and whether or not it's safe to go lower, you know, spoiler alert, it is. Um, If it's well-planned, of course, you know, we were able to reduce the percentage of our clients that required insulin therapy by about 50%. And that's right in line with what the data shows as well. You, You treat with either a low glycemic index diet, or if you provide a low glycemic index diet, you will see either, depending on the study you're talking about, we have studies showing lower glucose variability. So like fewer blood sugar spikes by about 50%. And we have other studies showing uh, lower requirements for insulin by about 50%. Um, And that's precisely what we saw in practice, just a dramatic reduction in the number who required um, medication to treat. So if we can just prevent the blood sugar spike in the first place, make up any, you know, deficit in calories from other foods that don't spike your blood sugar, you can absolutely meet all your micronutrient requirements of pregnancy. Baby can grow perfectly healthy and you're just not spiking your blood sugar excessively three to six times per day. <laughs> I mean, it seems very obvious, but it th- that's surprisingly controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like the go-to is just to give more inputs rather than to take away the inputs. And I'm always curious about the motivation behind it. Do you think it comes from, uh, I, I guess what's scary is that people think that in pregnancy, you're going to go to ketoacidosis, which is different than going to ketosis and producing ketones. Do you think it's that motivation to keep the carb levels high? Or do you think it's more of like a policy issue where maybe carbohydrates marketing food industry is making more money off of this? Maybe it's a combination of both. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. So on the, you know, on the benign side, <laughs> The, the factor would be the concern about ketones, and we could go into that. From the industry side, certainly our guidelines are a reflection of a heck of a lot of uh, food, food uh, industry influence on our policies. Um, so there's that side. There's also like the very profitable diabetes, uh, you know, pharma industry. Um, that's another side. But I think the, the major underpinning for most clinicians is just this idea of avoiding ketones or that or, or just this like innate trust that the guidelines have our best interest in recommending a high carb diet. Like, well, that provides lots of nutrition and lots of nutrients that you need. And they're not really thinking critically because there's really not, like grains are not particularly nutrient dense um, right. relative to other foods. You can, you know, prepare them in ways that make them more nutrient dense and more digestible and whatever, but still like grains are not a good source or any source of a lot of the micronutrients that you require in higher amounts in pregnancy, like B12 and iron and zinc and choline and like, you name it, vitamin A, like they're not rich in those nutrients, like some of the ones that are most commonly lacking. So what is it? And and really it does end up coming down to the ketone conversation. And uh, that's like a two hour conversation in and of itself. So I'll try to be brief, but (laughs) essentially there's concerns that um, ketones could harm fetal brain development. And there's, uh, you know, that, that was a very lengthy rabbit hole to dive into. I mean, you have to go all the way back to studies from like the 1950s and sixties to understand like where that idea came from. Um, it's based on really shoddy evidence, by the way, like checking maternal urinary ketones, um, at the date of admission to the hospital when you're in labor, when you're in labor, most women are in ketosis already because you often can't keep food down. So that's really silly. Um, but that study correlated it with APGAR scores. APGAR scores are very, they're, they're not a perfect measurement, right? It's very much influenced by a clinician assessment and doesn't necessarily indicate anything about long-term brain health. But nonetheless, there was that. 
And then later on, there was a study that suggested um, mild ketosis could be linked to lower IQ in kids. That again, ended up being pretty shoddy evidence that the level of, of, they actually did measure blood ketones in that study, which is better than urinary ketones because urinary ketones are essentially clinically meaningless, um, especially in pregnancy. Um, but that one measured blood ketones and the blood ketones were very, very low among the groups. And so I don't even know how they were able to pull any correlation. It was like 0.1. And, um, you know, there's more recent studies that have looked at what is actually a normal level of blood ketones in pregnancy. And like both groups, whether they're eating low carb or high carb had average blood ketone levels of 0.1. So, um, it's really not based on, solid evidence, uh, whatsoever. And I, I go through that in a lot more rigorous detail in chapter 11 of real food for gestational diabetes, but suffice to say, you know, the data on like mild ketosis causing any issues or nutritional ketosis could be another way to say it. Physiological ketosis is simply not there. The data that we do have showing that there's harms to fetal brain development are from studies on starvation ketosis So women who are not eating enough food uh, as a whole, like either intentionally or forced to not eat enough. um, Yeah, you have high ketone levels because you start burning body fat, but you're also depleted in like everything. Like starving is never a great idea during pregnancy. So yes, the ketone levels are bad, but it could also be deprivation of a number of different nutritional factors. And then the other data is on um, diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a very specific emergency metabolic state that really only occurs in people who have insulin dependent diabetes, like type one diabetes or very advanced type two diabetes, where you absolutely are requirement requiring multiple um, doses of exogenous insulin during the day. And if you underdose your insulin, um, your blood sugar levels spike really high. You can't, you know, access that fuel um, within the state of low insulin and you start burning body fat for fuel. So in essence, it's almost like starvation ketosis, but it's from insulin deprivation. You don't see this in a regular, like non-diabetic person. You also don't see it typically in gestational diabetes because that's usually a situation of high insulin levels um, paired with high insulin resistance. It's not insulin deprivation. So yes, diabetic ketoacidosis is a problem. It's a medical emergency. It's terrible for fetal brain development. It often results in you know, the, the pregnancy not being viable anymore. Um, it's very serious, but you don't go into DKA from a diet that's lower in carbohydrates. That just doesn't happen. You have to have some pre-existing pathology going on. So that, that kind of becomes a moot point really. Yeah. Sure. Thank you for the clarification. It's great. More on ketones. Is it true that when babies are being breastfed, they are in ketosis due to the high fat content of breast milk? Yes. Which so, I would think is good for brain. Yep. So that's another, that's another line of reasoning. Um, as of 2016, we had a really interesting study out of Japan that looked at um, maternal ketone levels at delivery, ketone levels in the placenta, ketone levels in the baby, all the way from birth up to a month. Interestingly, so baby's ketone levels were many fold higher maternal ketone levels. The highest levels of ketones were in the placenta. And there is data suggesting that the placenta actively engages in ketogenesis, meaning it creates its own ketones. So the idea is if maternal supply is not enough, like the placenta is there to preferentially make ketones to supply them 
to the baby, right? The placenta is like the interface between mom and baby and is responsible for the nutrient transfer. About 30% of fetal brain energy needs come from ketones. So arguably, yeah, they're they're vital to fetal brain development. And you're always going to be in flux between the fuels you're using. I don't think people need to be in like hardcore ketosis all the time, but you're just naturally going to go into ketosis overnight, whether you want to or not during pregnancy. Um, you're like threefold more likely to do so than when you're not pregnant. It's just there. It's, it's a backup fuel mechanism. And arguably it might be serving an important purpose. So when baby is born, they, yes, they use ketones during pregnancy, during fetal development, after they're born, they continue to use ketones. So when you're born, not only is your mom probably in ketosis during labor, because it's just a fact of the matter, you're working super hard and you're often not able to eat very much, even if you want to eat, um, you might not be able to keep it down, or at least that was my experience, both labors, um, you're probably in ketosis. And then, uh, you know, as you start nursing, the first usually couple days of milk is colostrum, which is higher fat, um, but it's also very low it's highly nutrient dense, but a very small volume. So baby is also going to be reliant on their fat stores for fuel. They tend to be in the deepest state of ketosis in the first few days before like the milk transitions to mature milk, which is much higher in um, lactose, much higher in carbohydrates, but they still remain in mild ketosis through at least the first month. There is data longer term showing that that continues many months later as well. And breastfed babies do tend to stay in ketosis more and for longer than uh, formula fed babies just from the composition of breast milk. I mean, it is actually a high carbohydrate milk. I mean, it's, it has fat and protein too, but really like breast milk is also high carb, but a lot of the carbohydrates are not digestible. So it's not like blood sugar <laughs> spiking carbohydrates necessarily. A lot of them are in the form of like complex carbohydrates called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. So they're, they're fuel for the infant microbiome, for the infant gut bacteria, not uh, digestible and used for energy necessarily. So it, I give some caveats because like it's, it's a yes and or a yes but um, conversation. But absolutely, the, the whole argument that like, oh, these ketones are bad for fetal brain development is very confusing when you start to understand like, well, wait, they're using the ketones. Well, wait, after birth, suddenly something that was harmful is now helpful. Like, why is that the physiological design? If the ketones were supposedly toxic in utero, then what does something switch magically during labor or at birth where suddenly ketones are good? Like you can't, you can't get a baby out of ketosis in the first few days of life. They, 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 they can't, cause they can't consume a high enough volume of food, their stomach is so small. That's one of the ideas behind why like human babies have, you know, higher percentage of body fat is like, it, it's there as a protective mechanism for, you know, fuel for those first couple of days when, when they're just not getting a high volume of, of milk. So yeah, <laughs> there's That's a so lot of, ugh, yeah, there's a lot of issues with the, these theories. Yeah. It's so wild. It just feels like at large, we're ignoring like the body's natural protective and survival mechanisms that we have. And it's like the same argument about cholesterol or it's like, we need cholesterol. Why are we still after all this time demonizing it? So I'm curious when a woman is pregnant and she's going to her doctor, they're testing usually urinary ketones, which you said is not really a valuable piece of information compared to blood ketones. Say they are producing the urinary ketones. And then the general advice is you need more carbohydrates to avoid that. 
if a client, and actually I have personal experience, I have a client that introduced us to you. And when she was pregnant, was was following your work and her doctor was really, really pushing the high carbohydrate diet. And she knew like intuitively and from her research that that wasn't going to benefit her. What would you advise for a pregnant woman who is being opposed essentially from their doctor with this, <laughs> I don't know, false, yeah. I'll put in quotations, false information. <laughs> you know, it's an unfortunate situation. and. Um it's so hard when you know more than your clinician on certain topics. So I know for me personally, I mean, you have to make, you have to make the choice. Are you going to take this as an opportunity to like sort of fight back directly and educate, or are you going to like just roll with it and smile and nod? I think some of the concern over ketones is like some very older research suggesting that ketones is associated with toxemia, which we now call preeclampsia. So sometimes they have concerns about that. Sometimes they have concerns that you're not eating enough. So um, you can reassure them with your weight gain. Sometimes it's just the concern. Sometimes it's a concern about dehydration. Your ketone levels can be higher in your urine if you're dehydrated. And then of course, there's the concern about the fetal brain development issue. So you kind of have to make the call on how you're going to handle it. You know, I, I had ketones in my urine, both pregnancies, almost every time to check my urine. I mean, I think it's totally useless to even check it, but it's like, I mean, you know, depending on who you go to, sometimes you go to, if you go to like a regular doctor, they'll, they'll probably be using a keto stick, um, in, in the like lab. If you go to a midwife, sometimes they give you like a little stick to pee on and like ketones are just one of the things that they happen to check among many other markers that are in your urine. Depending on the provider, you can choose if you want to make it a battle and talk about it, or you can choose to, I don't know, not, not even go there or reassure that, no, I'm, I'm eating plenty. Look, my weight gain is good. And, and take it that way. Um, you can ask them to check blood ketone levels to reassure, like I was reading that urine ketones aren't an accurate marker of, uh, aren't an accurate reflection of blood ketone levels. So if you're concerned, like I know I'm eating plenty of food and plenty of carbs, but if you want to check, like you can check my blood ketone levels. So they could check your beta hydroxybutyrate levels. Um, usually they don't want to bother with doing that. Um, Hey, if you want to rule out diabetic ketoacidosis, first of all, it's like not even a clinical, not probably not even a scenario that's relevant for people, but they would also, the only way you can rule that out is with blood ketones. So if they're curious about that, you would have to check blood ketone levels. You would also just by default have to have really, really high blood sugar levels as well. So if they test your blood sugar and it's normal, (laughs) that like completely rules out that possibility. I do have some people who will like carb load prior to their visit and drink a lot of water and just try to like see if they can get their ketone levels down by that. I mean, I tried to do that a couple of times too. It doesn't always make much of a difference, (laughs) but, um, some people will choose that. It's like, if you just don't want to fight about it, it's just, Mm. some people will bring in like a copy of my book and be like, read this. But it's hard when you're in that, like, it's this very, like, paternalistic kind of role that you're in with a provider. And it's like this very subtle dance where you don't want to be like a problem client. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? But at the same time, you like want to educate. And so, um, it's a challenging place. It's a challenging place to be. I really feel for, for for women. And I think that's why a lot of them end up going with a midwife or, or some other kind of provider than an OB. 
because you yeah. need support in some form. And so I guess if you're deemed like sort of defiant, then what is that trust relationship? Like you're going to need to rely on them at some point. So, yeah, it can, yeah, it can create kind of an interesting dynamic. I mean, ultimately this kind of power play is why a lot of women end up free birthing. Actually, they just like, don't even want to deal with the system whatsoever. And I, I can understand that because it does get really frustrating, especially if you're really well-read and really educated. And then you're coming up against this like conversation about something that you know is totally irrelevant doesn't even matter and like you have to get into this like worked up anxiety like fighting sort of you know it's like that's yeah, so stressful like your glucose. When you're pregnant yeah spiking your glucose because you're all yeah. stressed more out cortisol it. more glucose it is frustrating yeah. like in my gestational diabetes course I do have like a handout that goes over ketones that sometimes women will like bring to their providers as like a conversation piece because you know it, a lot of times that conversation happens more often with um gestational diabetes. They might gloss over it if everything else looks normal in your pregnancy. So like my first, my provider eventually was like, okay, I, everything looks fine. So I'm not going to worry about the ketones thing. So it really depends. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, people are dealing with that with all kinds of healthcare providers, health conditions. I'm sure once you have kids, it's even harder because then you're dealing with the pediatrician. So mm -hmm. um, to all the moms out there, keep fighting the good fight. What's up, biohackers? We have some really exciting news for you today. Our friends over at Bioptimizers have done it again. They've just released their new and improved formula for Magnesium Breakthrough, the most powerful magnesium supplement on the market today. This product was already amazing, and you've probably heard us rave about it before, but Bioptimizers has continued to research and improve it. This new fourth-generation formula means Magnesium Breakthrough is now even more potent and effective for reducing stress, improving sleep, boosting energy levels. And if you've already taken Magnesium Breakthrough before, you'll want to try the new formula as soon as you can because it now includes cofactors like vitamin B6 and manganese, and these are really helpful with the absorption of magnesium. And if you've never tried Magnesium Breakthrough before, then now's the perfect time to try it. So Here's what you need to know about magnesium. Two really important reasons to take it. First, magnesium is involved in 80% of the body's metabolic reactions. Yes, you heard me correctly, 80%. And second, about 75% of people are not getting enough magnesium. I mean, there's many reasons why that's happening, but you can see that it's a much bigger problem than most people even think. When you don't get enough magnesium, you suffer from poor sleep, low energy, higher stress levels. All these things that we don't want, right? So in every bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough, you'll actually get seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, and these can help you sleep longer and deeper, reduce those stress levels, help you feel more calm, and really give you that abundant all-day energy that all of us want, right? And also, because it supports mental wellness, Magnesium Breakthrough can help you to finally feel like yourself again. So simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and we think you'll be pretty amazed by the improvements in your mood and your energy and your sleep. Hopefully, you're going to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to go for the day. So Bioptimizers is kind enough to give our listeners an exclusive offer, and we will put all of this information in today's show notes, but go to www.magmag.com breakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use code biohackerbabes at checkout because that will actually get you 10% off. Plus you'll get free shipping. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Um, but I think, so it's not just like ketones and carbs and all this, of course, is so important, but the micronutrients, I know you're really big on eating a nutrient dense diet. 
And like you said, grains are not the best source of these micronutrients. So what are your thoughts on organ meats? Obviously Weston Price is really big on organ meats, but should be, should we be doing that pre-pregnancy, preconception, so on? I mean, yeah, arguably the most important time for, for high nutrient intake is before pregnancy, where you can influence your egg quality and your nutrient stores and support, you know, healthy hormone production, keep your menstrual cycle regular and normal flow and luteal phase a sufficient length and all of that. Um, and also for your partner for, you know, sperm quality and this, you know, period of time that this is most important is really like the year and six months leading up to conception. I mean, longer eating nutrient dense is ideally better, but you know, if you can even give it a couple months, it's hugely beneficial in terms of like rates of, you know, fecundability, they call it, which is like your likelihood of getting pregnant, any given menstrual cycle, you know, miscarriage rates, thyroid health, uh, risk of pregnancy complications. I mean, all of these things ultimately uh, can be influenced by by preconception nutrient stores. So if you can, great. Um, a lot of people don't have the luxury of planning for pregnancy. You know, about half of pregnancies are, are unplanned. So, I mean, sort of as an insurance policy, you could just be eating well all, the whole time and that would be optimal. But what that, a concept. You know, this, this doesn't always happen, right? So um, yeah. if you're already pregnant, yes, or organ meats would also be uh, beneficial. The challenge with organ meats, I think, is a lot of people are not used to consuming them. Um, many people didn't grow up like yourselves, eating Western price style and eating organ meats and eating all these off cuts um, or even eating meat whatsoever. And, and it becomes very scary um, to venture there. Um, you might not have the taste for it yet. Um, or you might be facing like pregnancy, uh, nausea or food aversions in the first trimester, which can make some of these foods a little more off-putting. Um, so if you're in that phase, like just <laughs> survival mode is fine. But if you're, at, you're out of that phase and, and really can uh, tolerate a wider variety of foods, absolutely incorporating organ meats is really beneficial. They are some of our most nutrient dense foods. I mean, it really comes down to like organ meats and shellfish, bivalve shellfish are, are kind of, um, neck to neck in terms of nutrient density. There are some differences. I have, um, separate blog posts on, on both of these that I've put out recently. If, if people want to read about the differences, but you know, you look at the nutrients of concern for pregnancy and you're like hitting all the marks, especially with the organ meats, you know, you've mm. got your iron and your copper and your zinc and your vitamin A and K2 and uh, folate, magnesium, a lot of trace minerals. I mean, there's so much going on in, in organ meats that you're just getting a, such a higher concentration of them per serving size. So if that's any reassurance, you don't have to eat a huge amount to reap the benefits. I think that's something that bears repeating. Cause anytime I talk about the benefits, people are like, well, I can't eat liver. It's like, I eat every day. I'm like, you don't have to, first of all, you don't have to eat like straight up liver. You could do like I do make pate and hide it in ground meat dishes. So you don't notice the flavor as much and you can have organ meats like once a week or even twice a month. And you're, mm. you're massively fortifying your diet with a lot of micronutrients. So it, it doesn't have to be, um, this like all or nothing, like I'll eat liver for every single meal or like, I'm never going to touch it. Cause it's disgusting. There there's a middle ground here. <laughs> Right. Yeah, great that's great. Uh, what are your thoughts on personalizing the amounts there? I think you 
probably actually already answered this question, but for anyone that has like an altered, like purine metabolism, are you seeing any issues with maybe doing too much organ meats? Would you err on the side of once a month, once every two months versus more often, depending on where that metabolism sits or maybe what biomarkers would you look at to see if it's working or not working? I mean, I would go by your your symptoms, right? Um, like if you're having, you know, I guess with a purine issue, you're looking at uric acid. Yeah. And, and like joint pain and stuff. So if you're having like actively, um, having flare ups when you eat organ meats, then yeah, I would look at paring that down potentially, you know, there's, there's also a lot of interesting research on uric acid and fructose. So you might want to look elsewhere in your diet as well, instead of just blaming it on the protein foods, um, look at some other foods that can enhance, you know, endogenous formation of some of these um, compounds. So really getting serious about like sugar-sweetened beverages and highly concentrated sources of fructose, even fruit juice. I know, even though it's fruit, but it is a highly, highly concentrated source of sugar. And I mean, I think there's a few examples where fruit juice would have made sense ancestrally. Like if you were in a warm area that had citrus growing, you can easily squeeze an orange and get orange juice out of it. Right. But yeah. a lot of juices, you know, you can't really make a lot of fruits into juice without having like a high powered blender or juice juicer. And so you'd really be forced to eat the whole fruit with the fiber, with all those, you know, cellular walls intact and you get full just from the fiber and the process of like chewing and eating, it just becomes annoying at a certain point that you stop. Right. So to get your little 16 ounce bottle of orange juice that you can chug in two seconds, that's the equivalent of four oranges, you know? So people don't think of it in those terms, but, you know, also look at, look at the, the sugars where they might be coming in the diet. I, I'm picking on like fruit juice since we have, as you've described a very health conscious audience, of course, the, you know, the bigger fish to fry is like, the actual sugar sweetened beverages and high fructose corn syrup and stuff. So if you have, you know, sodas and those sorts of things, candy coming in, that that would be where I would go first before, um, you know, putting the scarlet letter on on organ meats. Um, but if you have flares, of course, like adjust it downward, and maybe you'd have, you know, some maybe different nutrient dense foods would make sense for you and what makes sense with your ancestry, you know, if you lived in, if your ancestry is from like a coastal living area, maybe, maybe they weren't as reliant on, you know, mammals for nutrition and maybe they were more reliant on seafood and maybe you could, you know, incorporate some oysters or clams or something in lieu of some of those organ meat servings. And perhaps that would help. I don't know. I think everybody has everyone's physiology is different at a certain point. You ultimately have to like <laughs> just Dig surrender deep. to the fact that, you know, I'm different than this person and different than that person. And, and I have full permission to, you know, respond to that. You don't have to fit into this cookie cutter mold of what, what I might consider a nutrient dense diet. There's always wiggle room. Yeah. Yeah. I love looking at the ancestral piece because yeah. I mean, our ancestors are more from the Mediterranean, so we might do better on that diet versus growing up in right. Northern Canada or whatever. And I, I think it was maybe in Dave Asprey's book somewhere I read about, you know, different cultures and what they would feed the women or men and women before mm -hmm. conception. And like, I know certain areas it was like fish eggs was the staple for mm -hmm. however many months. And this one was this, and they all discovered what was native to their land and what was the most mm -hmm. nutrient dense preconception. So, I mean, humans Absolutely. have been doing this a long time. It's not, 
you know. And you see that it's kind of a tug of war between um, seafood, especially bivalve shellfish and fish eggs and stuff, and um, like land, large land mammals and specifically their organs. So you'll see some like native, you know, communities in North America, um, you know, what is currently the U.S. And, and Canada, and they would be looking at, you know, organ meats, marrow, gathering certain organs like the thyroid of the moose and stuff like which was probably a really rich storehouse of of iodine if you didn't have um, a lot of access to to coastal regions and fish that makes sense sometimes tribes even if they were warring would go to great lengths to exchange foods they'd have like a special spot where they would exchange foods where the people living inland would leave something and the people living coastal would leave them you know seaweed and clams and mussels and things. Um, so there was like this understanding, even if they didn't get along, like you need this to survive and we need that to survive. So we'll make this trade. Um, but most of those foods end up being animal foods. There are a few exceptions. If you really start going back through Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, there's a, there's a few exceptions to there, certain seaweeds and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was usually animal foods, usually organs, or some kind of really high nutrient dense uh, seafood item. And then, of course, if you were of a community that um, were, you know, had had uh, cattle or any kind of animal that that produces milk, um, sometimes that would fill a nutritional gap too. Yeah, oh, that's so fascinating. Love learning about that. So, with gestational diabetes, are you? I mean, you must be seeing a higher prevalence of moving towards a diabetic condition, being on a vegetarian plant-based diet away from animal foods. Yes. Can you make that claim? Yes. And that really comes down to the, well, not only the nutrient density, because there are different micronutrients that play a role in insulin sensitivity, for example, but a lot of it comes down to the macronutrient ratios. So and then how different macronutrients affect your blood sugar. So the most blood sugar spiking macronutrient is carbohydrate foods. And our carbohydrates come from plants. Our animal foods are usually very low or completely absent of carbohydrates. They get their calories from fat and protein, neither of which tend to really spike your blood sugar. They tend to kind of stabilize it where it's at. Carbohydrates, on the other hand, do raise your blood sugar. So if you're a vegetarian and the average vegetarian eats about 60% of their calories from carbohydrates and only about 12% of their calories from protein, you end up with a much more difficult time managing blood sugar levels. And then just in terms of trying to meet your protein needs, if you are doing it from whole plant foods and you haven't like isolated your plant protein for your like rice protein concentrate or pea protein powder or whatever, all of your plant sources of protein also come packaged with some degree of carbohydrates, some more than others. So yeah, you can have your beans be a source of protein, but that 15 grams of protein from beans comes packaged with 45 grams of carbohydrates. And then is that the only carbohydrate you're going to have at that meal? Like sure, you know, 15 grams isn't even enough for a meal, but like, okay, that's a start. That's a good start. Let's let's keep that serving of legumes. Absolutely. What are you going to package with it? <laughs> so if it's a serving of grains or corn or fruit, it gets a little bit challenging because then you just start adding on to the carbohydrate load with an even lower proportion of protein coming in. Mm-hmm. For vegetarians who do 
consume eggs and dairy products, it's much, much easier because you can just be more reliant on eggs, which have virtually no carbohydrates. And then your um, low carbohydrate dairy options, like cheese is very low carb. Um, Greek yogurt, plain Greek yogurt is very low carb. So you can rely on some of those um, proteins or you can start doing like the supplemental isolated plant proteins, but those those provide protein, but they're not nutrient dense. I mean, you've taken out pretty much everything except the isolated protein. So it's a stand-in. It, it, it can be done. Is it ideal? Um, I don't believe that it's ideal, but it can be done. And we, I've had many um, clients where we've sort of creatively crafted a blood sugar, more blood sugar friendly vegetarian diet might not be as delicious as their original one, because by default, you, you kind of don't have, you have to be much more reliant on like legumes, nuts, and seeds for your protein. And so that leaves less room in terms of carbs for your fruit and your grains and like some of your more yummier carb options. So it is what it is. Totally. I do try to work with people, but it's, it's not easy. And some of my most challenge, challenging gestational diabetes um, cases have been in vegetarians for that reason. It's just really hard to get the macros in a place for blood sugar balance. Yeah. I definitely see that too with glucose coaching. People are like, how do I stabilize my blood sugar? <laughs> like, well, <laughs> it's really I'm not going to tell you to eat something you don't want to, but <laughs> I know it's and definitely harder. Uh, yeah. It's a whole can of worms because there's all different reasons that people are vegetarian. So I usually try to, you know, talk very gently with like, can you help me understand like how long have you been vegetarian? What keeps you eating this way? What's like your main motivation? Um, is this something that you're strongly want to, um, continue? Are you open to incorporating foods beyond like your current foods? And, and that kind of gives you an idea of where the client is at and where there's, you know, wiggle room for, mm -hmm. um, adjustments. Yeah. Uh, of course I'm often taking things from the micronutrient standpoint. So I have like a whole section at the end of um, chapter three of real food for pregnancy, going through nutrients of concern on, on a vegetarian diet. So even if you can swing it and get the macros in a place for okay, blood sugar balance, there's still a whole slew of micronutrients you want to think about. And then even, you know, beyond that, since writing real food for pregnancy, I've gotten very into looking at the research on different amino acids. And there's a lot of these so-called non-essential or conditionally essential amino acids that are often only provided by animal foods. Um, some of them are only in things like muscle meats. You know, they're not in dairy and eggs in significant quantities. So they would be automatically low on a vegetarian diet and especially a vegan diet. And some of those have really important roles in, in fetal development and pregnancy health. So there's a lot more considerations than like this very, very short list of nutrients that are typically listed as, you know, potentially problematic, you know, in the dietetics literature, because of course they, they say this, you know, you can eat this way for any life stage. And as long as it's well-planned, you're fine, but nobody really seems to get into like the weeds on this and you start getting into the weeds on this and you just uncover some very, you know, uncomfortable findings for people. Yeah. And, and I think like you said, it depends on why they're doing it. I mean, having an ethical right. or religious reason is completely different than thinking it's, you know, quote unquote healthy. Right. So and I think the health <laughs> focused, the ones who use health as their primary motivation, usually those ones are, um, you know, they, they read real food for pregnancy and they, they change their mind when it's a fundamental, you know, belief system 
that might not be changeable. And that might be something where there's like tweaks to optimize and additional supplementation. I'm not going to say it's optimal, but you know, potentially you can work around it, like uh, maybe mitigate the damage or uh, mitigate the potential nutrient deficiencies. You know what I mean? Um, I think a lot of providers also should just be doing a lot more like testing to see if it's, you know, appropriate or if there's any downstream consequences, like usually in pregnancy, they're not like, it's not routine to check micronutrient levels. I mean, you might screen for anemia and iron levels. Maybe I think I've seen one client my whole career where like their provider ordered some markers of B12 and B12 deficiency, but it's really rare that they're checking like a full complement of nutrients. And then did they check like your genetics to see whether you might have issues converting beta carotene into vitamin A, like about half of the population has, or did they check if you have some, (laughs) yeah, I have that one too. Do you have the one that, you know, means that you might have higher choline requirements than the average person? Did they check for MTHFR, which not only affects folate metabolism, that also signals a higher need for choline and, and other methyl donors. Um, so I have all of those. Yeah, I do <laughs> all too. <of> the above. <laughs> Me. And that explains why I felt so rotten so quickly on uh really what what was otherwise a very healthy vegetarian diet. I mean, I was like sprouting all my own grains and making my soups and not eating processed soy products. And I still wasn't even entirely vegan, but my health really tanked very quickly eating that way. And once mm. you understand your genetics and like you know, I have a propensity for hypoglycemia. I was like, oh, this makes sense. I need like a lot more protein than that was providing, like a lot more, a lot of, lot of protein, a lot of fat. And, and my body just thrives, like just very, very happy. But you start titrating up the carbs, titrating down the fat and protein. And it's like, my body just tanks. It's, it's, it's a train wreck really quickly. Um, I'm just very fortunate that I figured that out like as a teenager, instead of spending, you know, 20 years like that as, as so many people do. What's up, biohackers? Quick interruption. Our friends at Earth and Moon have offered a free grounding mat starter kit giveaway for our listeners. If you're not familiar with grounding, also called earthing, it involves walking barefoot on the Earth's surface and absorbing the Earth's free electrons, which energize and harmonize the body. If you're feeling stressed out or depleted most days, this could be a sign that the body is out of balance and perhaps disconnected from nature. The problem is I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy, which makes it challenging to spend as much time in nature as we should or would like to. So, Earth and Moon has designed an eco-friendly grounding mat that can conduct this electrical charge and connect it to your body while sitting, standing, or sleeping really anywhere indoors so you get the benefits of nature while you're inside. The mat is highly conductive, lightweight, travel-friendly, built with eco-conscious materials, yet super durable. I love keeping it under my feet while I'm sitting on Zoom calls all day or under my pillow while traveling in hotels and Airbnbs, I swear it makes me sleep so much deeper. It's just that extra little nature boost that undeniably makes us all feel more in balance and connected. We are so thrilled that our friends at Earth and Moon have offered this amazing giveaway for you all. Entries do begin today, so head over to our Instagram page, biohacker underscore babes. All you have to do is like and comment on today's post and make sure to follow Earth and Moon on Instagram. Instagram as well. So one lucky winner is going to receive a free starter grounding kit 
Oh, I am so excited. The winner is going to be announced next Monday on Instagram. So stay tuned and good luck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The personalization is so, so important. I'm glad you brought up the genetic piece. I'm curious on a more generalized front with changes in biomarkers in pregnancy. We know like just on a basic metabolic panel, there's going to be some biomarkers that will fluctuate throughout pregnancy. And a lot of that is very normal and will resolve after. Mm-hmm. And I guess to add on to that, like HRV, heart rate variability will change. Mm-hmm. What do we need to be concerned about? What is totally normal in those fluctuations? I know it's mm-hmm. like a big rabbit hole of a question. Yeah. Well, that is a big rabbit hole. Um, related to our conversation today, um, blood sugar levels actually do trend downward um, during pregnancy. If, if everything is going as physiologically designed which doesn't always happen. Um, so, you know, some markers like the, the lower limit for what's considered low blood sugar outside of pregnancy is usually 70 during 60, even conventionally it's, it's dropped down to 60 milligrams per deciliter instead of 70. So that's a consideration. Your red blood cell turnover is faster, um, during pregnancy. And so any markers that are reliant on that. So like hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of your blood sugar metabolism that should in a healthy pregnancy trend downward. Um, so it can be used as a biomarker for like a risk for gestational diabetes in the first trimester. Um, even the California diabetes and pregnancy program recommends it as first trimester screening. If you, if you score in the pre-diabetic range of 5.7% or greater, they treat you as if you have gestational diabetes. You don't have to go on and drink the glucose tolerance test later on. It's like, there is pre-existing insulin resistance here. We should deal with it now instead of waiting for a glucose tolerance test later on. Like, it doesn't matter. We got to treat. So A1C though, typically trends down. So some people get that information. They're like, oh, well, I'm going to skip my glucose tolerance test and just do an A1C later on. And it's going to be lower because your blood is more dilute and your red blood cells are turning over faster. So naturally it's going to be artificially lower um, over the course of pregnancy. So if it's not going down, that's actually a problem. I like to see the A1C drop over the course of pregnancy. Hmm. A lot of other things drop naturally too. You know, ferritin naturally drops over the course of pregnancy, and that's not necessarily something to be uh, overly concerned about. I think there's all sorts of arbitrary thresholds given out there about um, ferritin in pregnancy. And there is some interesting data showing like where it just like <laughs> drops and then postpartum, like just comes back up. I think there's a lot of room though, for revised data on this, because there's a lot that we just don't necessarily know. Um, mm-hmm. we don't always have a ton of data in pregnancy specifically. And then if they do have the data, it's usually just sort of surveillance data on like so-called healthy participants, but how healthy are they? You know, a lot of the population is yeah. not very healthy. So those surveillance studies aren't all that great. So there's a lot that we just don't know. And so many times I feel a little bit uncomfortable giving like really strict lab ranges. ranges. It's just going to vary. There's a couple things we know are optimal, like vitamin D levels of 40 nanograms per mil or greater is like associated with a 60% reduction in, in the risk of preterm birth. So that's like a huge one. If you can go into pregnancy with optimal vitamin D levels and maintain them, that's, that's good. Whereas one other was going to mention your lipids usually go up 
during pregnancy and that's totally normal and not something to worry about. It, it, your body is just mobilizing fats um, more regularly. Not only are you sending mm -hmm. glucose and ketones um, and amino acids, you're also sending um, you know, lipids to baby's development as well. And the physiological design is that postpartum, you can use some of those lipids uh, like in the creation of breast milk as well. So postpartum, when you're breastfeeding, your lipid levels will also remain elevated. Um, and so you don't want to have like cholesterol, cholesterol panel, lipid panel at like three months postpartum, it's going to come back high and freak you out when it's totally normal, your body is, has built up these lipids and is continuing to mobilize them for baby's brain development. Um, so that's not a problem. Um, and physiologically it's like, it, it's, you know, breastfeeding is associated with so many benefits and some of those benefits are because you have mobilized those fuels, um, long-term. So it's associated with, you know, long-term better cardiovascular outcomes, not saying that cholesterol levels are always totally associated with that, but you know, right. you're mobilizing those lipids where they've, where they're designed to, to go. You're using up a lot of, you know, glucose just in the creation of breast milk, just, you know, your mammary glands are just taking up a lot of fuels in the creation of breast milk. So it's generally associated with lower type two diabetes risk factors, um, lower risk factors for things like metabolic syndrome. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that physiologically happens that might freak you out if you just happen to get, you know, blood work done and, oh my God, my cholesterol is like triple what it should be. Sure, yeah. And it's, it's actually totally normal in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So they actually don't recommend routine screening of um, lipid panels in pregnancy or early breastfeeding, but some of course are yeah. not aware of that and still yeah. measure those things. Oh my yeah, gosh. You answered sure. so many questions. Thank you so much. That was amazing. We have to wrap up, but I have just one final quick question for women that are thinking about getting pregnant or are already pregnant. As far as glucose goes, would you recommend a CGM? Would you recommend just following a one C like quick advice on how to monitor mm. healthy pre conception levels? pre or already in? Okay. Well, I think it really depends on what you have available um, at your disposal and your, you know, money and, and stuff, uh, how cool of a, of a medical provider you have. Um, sometimes with CGM, at least in the States, you either have to go through a service um, that connects you with a prescriber or go through your prescriber directly outside of the U S they're available in pharmacies in a lot of countries, just over the counter, like any other regular glucometer, right. not here, just, expensive and difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's expensive and difficult. I mean, I think CGM is an amazing tool. You know, I've written about my experience using it on my blog, you can search CGM experiment. I also have some on my um, Instagram from my more recent CGM uh, experiment, my CGM story highlights. I'll probably write about that at some point. It, it does have some downsides though, in that I do think people get, you need a lot of context in interpreting blood sugar values and blood sugar spikes. And having worked with so many people with actual diabetes, I have like a a different context for looking at blood sugar numbers. So when I see a higher blood sugar reading than is typical for me, uh, I don't see it as like, Oh my God, my body's like broken and I can never eat that food again. I'm just sort of like, ah, noted. I would expect 
you know, having right. eaten yeah. a giant banana by itself on an empty stomach when I'm super hungry would spike me a lot. And it did. Interesting, you know, and you could kind of move on where I think some people really pathologize like every reading that they see and demonize certain foods. Yeah. And if you're not careful, and I mean, I think that's, that's the point, right. To see what spikes your blood sugar, but, um, different combinations of food can really impact the blood sugar response. So you might not need to eliminate that food. It might be a portion issue, a time of day issue. There could have been stress going on. You know, I found that like I can eat higher carb things, uh, like dessert essentially, like after a high protein dinner. And that doesn't result in the same blood sugar spike is if I had that on an empty stomach. Um, and so those are some things where like, when you have the context, you don't get as freaked out, but I think it can lead people to disordered eating patterns if they're not careful. Um, and I think some of the apps that have like interpretation of values have very strict thresholds, which are like not realistic for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. so like your blood sugar doesn't always have to be under 110. I mean, that's cool if it is. And, And sometimes you'll eat meals that are like that and that's great. But like, it's also okay for your blood sugar level to go to like 120 or even 130 or so. And like, if you have healthy blood sugar metabolism, if it comes back down within, you know, an hour or two, that that's just a sign that you have a functioning pancreas and you ate a higher carbohydrate food and it went up and it went down and that's okay. Um, you know, so I think there's, thank you for normalizing that uh, there's some little caveats on there. I mean, I still tend to eat in a way that generally leaves me pretty blood sugar balanced. But just be cautious with CGM if you find that you're freaking out about it and then like now you're under eating and like you feel like you're starving and you can't eat. Like people take it too far. Totally. For most of the population, um, with my long CGM caveat, for most of the population, I think that just getting a screening with an A1C can give you a good indication of whether or not you need to look more closely at it, whether that's with blood sugar monitoring with a regular meter or a CGM or some more formal testing with your clinician, just looking at where you fall on A1C is helpful. It's not a perfect marker. There is no single marker that is perfect, but you can significantly reduce your chances of any sort of, you know, complications in pregnancy, um, increase your odds of conception um, with, with blood sugar in a healthy range. And it, it's like, you want to stay below that pre-diabetic range. You start climbing up towards that level and you do see there's like a longer time to pregnancy. There's a higher rate of miscarriage. There's a higher chance that that blood sugar issue or insulin resistance issue will worsen over the course of pregnancy. And you'll have a so-called diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Is it really pregnancy induced? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pre-existing that we're just identifying. So if you can identify it ahead of time or early pregnancy, really that's that's optimal. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, but that's optimal. I'm so glad you just said that because one of my questions that I was like, I'm not going to have time to ask her was literally that, like how often is it happening before pregnancy and we're missing it? So oh, yeah. you jumped ahead and answered that. Well, Thank you. I will tell you that, you know, one of the um, doctors, perinatologists that I worked with, since we were following those California diabetes and pregnancy guidelines, we screened all of our clients universally with A1C in the first trimester. And if they were above that pre-diabetic threshold, they were treated like they saw me and they got nutrition counseling, luckily with like good advice that actually worked. (laughs) And, 
you know, we had two thirds of the pregnancy to, to do something, but they never took a glucose tolerance test because we identified the issue that way and then just went on to monitor. So I had a very low percentage of clients who would actually do a glucose tolerance test at that time because most of them we already caught. Now, the women who passed the, the A1C screening in the first trimester, once they hit 24 to 28 weeks, you would do some form of glucose screening, which usually is a glucose tolerance test in a conventional practice. It was very rare that those people would end up failing the glucose tolerance test. Again, because we caught all the people with insulin resistance early on, really? or at least most yeah. of them, right? So my perspective on that, just from my like real life experience is that I think the majority of gestational diabetes cases are an indication of pre-existing insulin resistance issues that have simply been worsened over the course of pregnancy. Because if all goes as is physiologically designed and you're not coming into pregnancy with really high insulin resistance, your body compensates. You simply produce more insulin. <laughs> You can produce double or triple the amount of insulin over the course of pregnancy to accommodate for that. And your blood sugar levels remain in the normal range, actually slightly lower than, than outside of pregnancy. But if you already have this burden of insulin resistance, it's like you have a higher mountain to climb. Maybe your body could double or triple your insulin production. Can it like quadruple your insulin production? Like maybe not. Or there can be, you know, a, an issue with like the pancreas's capacity to adapt, like, especially if, you know, your mom had gestational diabetes in her pregnancy, that affects your lifelong insulin resistance. It affects your risk for type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and these other issues. And think about all the women who are coming of age and having children right now. Most of us are like children of seventies, eighties, nineties, maybe even two thousands now. I mean, we're into the 20, yeah. 2022, right? That's in like the low fat, high carb craze, right? Yeah. So what is the chances yeah. that our mothers had blood sugar aberrations in pregnancy? We know that that affects fetal pancreatic development and their metabolism. So I think we're in a really interesting uh, situation, like culturally, where these trends, like as prediabetes and type 2 diabetes rates go up exponentially, we're seeing that same trajectory with gestational diabetes. Is it truly a pregnancy specific issue or are we just catching it during pregnancy? And I think the majority of times we're just catching it. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Oh my goodness. Lily, thank you so much for all of this amazing information. I am sure our listeners are going to want to learn more. I know an hour was not enough time. So I will say um, in the show notes for today, we will put Lily's website, follow her on Instagram too. Your Instagram page is awesome. Lots of great information. And then of course, check out her books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and her second book, Real Food for Pregnancy. And Lily, before we let you run, can we ask for one final piece of advice, something that people can start doing right away for health and wellness? It can be pregnancy related or just very generic, whatever you sure. want to share. Eat a sufficient amount of protein at breakfast. It will set you up for a day of blood sugar stability, probably a lot fewer cravings and energy crashes later on. That is like the number one, excuse my kids screaming in the background. I think my six-year-old just grabbed something out of the hands of my two-year-old judging by the screams. Um, <laughs> anyways, if you set yourself up with, you know, a higher protein 
breakfast, ideally not super high in carbohydrates, um, it sets the stage for a much better day metabolically, not just from your blood sugar and insulin levels, but also your stress hormone levels as well. And that's been one of my number one recommendations for probably my entire career. And it still holds true whenever I don't take my own advice and I skip breakfast or I have something like, a you know, Oh, I'll just have a pastry for breakfast today. Disaster of a day ensues. Just yeah. stick with a high protein breakfast, keep the treats for later in the day. And it usually isn't as much of a disaster. <laughs> yeah, totally. Same. Great yes. advice. Oh, Lily, thank thank you you so much. So many goodies today and so much more to dig into with your book and your blog. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. You're just a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everyone that tuned in today. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then... Happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.